Peter writes to a church that is very familiar with persecution. This wasn't a lower level kind of difficulty like ridicule or being called names. This was a real life physical onslaught that included torture and death for many in this first century. And one really begins to wonder, what is it that God expects of us during this time? What does faith look like during a time like this of great persecution? I mean, Christians have a variety of answers regarding this question when trouble comes. So here are three approaches. And I believe that if I were to ask you how we were to respond, it might resemble one of these three, or we probably could come up with these three uh, ourselves. So this is nothing inventive. It's just by casual observation we can, we can come up with this. Here's the first response to how, what faith looks like. Uh, faith equals victory in miracles, and anything less is failure. Now, I think I can't know what's in the heart of every person who takes this, but some of it seems to be this kind of fleshly performance of spirituality. When circumstances are good and I am doing well, then my faith is producing, you know, victory, healing, miracles, and all of that. But when circumstances are not well, then my faith is what? It's tanked, right? Obviously, my faith is not producing what it should be producing. And the view is, is that I am at the center, that God is more a responder to which I grease the wheel to get what I need when it's activated by my faith. Now, by making this point, I certainly do not want to disparage miracles uh, or, or victory over sin. The problem is being man-centered versus Christ-centered dependence. And such a view promotes Christians kind of having this contrived excitement with a preponderance of stories about victories. It's one of the things about pastors that I think is a great weakness. Is you'll only hear stories of victories and not really frailty, problems, issues that, that, that we go through. Um, disappointments that I think are common feelings for most people in a, in, in a congregation, you know what that's seen as? That's seen as failure in this view. And uh, not a path of humility, not a path of understanding the sovereignty of God. So, faith equals victory and miracles, anything less is failure. Here's a second way to look at it. And this is probably the one that I was more familiar with when I, when I grew up. Faith equals a grin and bear it commitment. You fake it till you make it. Right? You've heard that before. So, for some, the idea of faith is all about commitment and about obligation. Now, I don't mean to, again, denigrate obligation and commitment. Um, I'm just saying there's more to it than that, right? In other words, if you believe the right things, you do the right things, you're going to just roll the dice on circumstances. And when things go well, you can enjoy it. But when things don't go well, you continue to do 
what's right, and you put your game face on so that you can be a good witness, right? That's part of your obligation. Always be a positive witness for the benefit of Jesus and never let others see you sweat. And such a view is prime breeding ground for a fake community that can never deal with doubts and questions or failure because the idea is it puts too much of a strain on our witness for Jesus. You know, we're not advertising too good when we do that. And that's perceived as a turnoff. Right? Here's the third one. Faith equals endurance with the joy of obedience. Hard knocks make a good teacher. Uh, the less option, I think, is becoming um, increasingly a smaller group within American evangelicalism. And that's where faith is viewed as a long game, I think this view says, and I don't think that's the view that's often perpetrated. With this view, obedience is a response to a genuine relationship with Christ, and not just an obligation. Uh, questions and problems, they're not seen as intruders, but simply curves in our destination. And instead of trying to seeing, uh, of seeing difficulties and relationships um, that are hard and trying to escape from them, um, they're welcomed and as a way to teach us lessons that can only be learned through that. And so I'll seek resolution through those issues or relational problems because there are lessons in that to be learned and not just my comfort. Great growth comes from endurance instead of missing the lessons when we opt for comfortability and escape. And with this view, Christian community is viewed as a place of committed relationships, right? Now, I, I don't want it to sound like everybody has to stay at the same church for life. I'm not saying that at all. God moves people, um, and, and that's a, that could be a good thing. But just don't let it be because we're not dealing with stuff. Don't let it be because we're afraid to have a tough conversation. And don't let it be because we're running from something without facing it. So, if you find yourself in these first two groups, you're probably not going to like 1 Peter, and you're probably going to want to just um, exit. Now, there are a lot of other reasons that people exit here, all right? But just don't let it be because of this that we're rejecting the message that 1 Peter is giving, that God's handiwork is seen in the midst of trials and, and, and travails. And he talks about the great benefits of, of endurance. So I, I think a lack of endurance, it reveals itself um, when we give up on being obedient to God. Uh, it reveals itself when we give up on relationships, we give up on a faith community, and we give up on God. It's just too hard. It's just too complicated. And and today, Christianity is seen as if it, if, if it just doesn't give me enough juice for a couple of weeks, then you know what? I'm out of here. 
And there's just something innately wrong about that. If I expected my wife to give me the juice, you know, every couple days and to excite me, and she was the one responsible to give me all I needed to live through things, I mean, it, it's just, it's an unfair proposition. Um, there's, there's something to be said about endurance here. Uh, so I think what First Peter is doing is paving a way for grace. Uh, I should say an enduring grace. All right, so let's take a look at our passage. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Let's stand as we look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, make this so in our lives. Make this so in our faith that we can be like this third group, enduring with the joy of obedience, learning all that it is you have for us, maturing the way that you want us to mature, even in the difficult times. And Father, I thank you for Peter. As we look at him, we see a lot of failure, and yet you use him in a great way. Encourage these, my brothers and sisters, in that same thing. We learned that this weekend in our men's meetings. What a great encouragement it was. And I, I pray that we can endure as we remember these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul reminds us that God, our Father, is worthy of blessing and then immediately reminds us that he is the Father of Jesus Christ. Now, is this one of the reasons to bless him? I, I think it might be. Uh, you realize his position in that Trinitarian relationship in other words, that Christ responded to the will of the Father in following through, even to the point of, be of obedience, following through with the redemption plan of death on a cross. We're told in Philippians, the Apostle Paul, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in Hebrews, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So suffering was a teacher for obedience and for endurance. And John wrote, but do, but I do as the Father has commanded me, Jesus is speaking, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Hmm. Clearly, there was a relationship here of the son submitting to the father. 
when we move along in the passage here in 1 Peter, we see clearly that the topic was salvation. And then he gives a nod to the focus upon salvation or the motivation when he says the mercy of God. The mercy of God. My mother-in-law was a, a good woman, very hard worker, had a difficult life growing up in poverty, losing her first husband to the Second World War in a submarine accident. Um, she was not one to give out many compliments. But sadly, she was also not one to receive them either. When I would go to hug her and I would tell her that I loved her, she would say, well, you're just saying that. You don't really mean it. Now, understanding her and what she had to deal with helped to see the cause of some of that. I think it makes the point that what sometimes hinders us in our relationships is that we misread the motives. And certainly, this is done with God, right? That when there's incredible issues or problems that come up in life, we, we blame God. I've heard that even today. I am blaming God for this or that. I'm mad at God. We don't see his mercy or his grace. We see him, you know, just kind of doing this to us, right? No, we've all do, we all do that. We've all been through this. But to doubt the motive is to hinder our ability to receive what God is giving us, right? Here's the biblical record, Exodus. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The psalmist wrote, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. <clears throat> Often, I think, when we talk about salvation, we see it as this transactional, judicial act. And certainly, that has a part of it. It's good to understand that. But we cannot miss that it springs from a God who is crazy about us and who is merciful, who is kind, who is gracious. Salvation does not come because we are rewarded for our faithfulness. Salvation does not come because we have earned it because of our merit, but it flows from the mercy of God. He then speaks of being born again, clearly, New birth is the topic. And John 3, we hear the story of Nicodemus talking about the meaning of this new birth. And he says that salvation produces a living hope. Now, this is not based on some willy-nilly notion or wish, but it says on the reality of the resurrected Christ in real space and time. In other words, you can have confidence in your hope as you rely upon the veracity of Christ having been resurrected from the dead. 
we're talking about hundreds of eyewitnesses. A historical account of the resurrection. We have no hope without the risen Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are fools to call ourselves Christians without the resurrected Christ. The resurrection is not some empty hope that we purport just like any other religious doctrine of the hundreds of religions in the world. It's based on history. Eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And because Jesus rose from the dead, then our hope of eternal life is verified. I figure since he rose from the dead, I can take his word on it when he talks about eternal life. It's not just a hope. What kind of hope is it? The qualifier. A living hope. It's not something that is static. It's a present reality with imminent and immediate benefits. Here's a question that I wish all Christians would ask themselves, especially in the last two years. With the election, with masks, with vaccine issues, uh, with COVID, whatever else is going on in the world. What difference does the Christian hope have for me? Should I moan and complain just like everybody else? Should I be fearful like everybody else? I have asked this question numerous times of people. Now, hold on, hold on a second. You're a Christian, right? Yes. What difference does it make in dealing with this issue as you talk about it? Now, understand something. I am just as ticked off. Okay? Right? My wife can attest to it. That's why I don't watch the news anymore. I don't. Now, there are times that maybe I'll, I'll, I'll watch a minute. Usually what happens, I watch two minutes and then I turn it off. Um, the ideology, I can't stomach anymore. I, I, I got that the 5,000th time you gave it, okay? So I understand all that. And again, it applies to a lot of different topics. But there's somehow, some way that I have to grab hold of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ and have that direct my mind and heart instead of the events of the day. Otherwise, I'm just down in the gutter like everybody else, hopeless, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. So, again, I ask the question, what difference does it make that I'm a Christian and I'm to have hope? It doesn't mean you can't get involved in politics. It doesn't mean you can't talk about the topics. All right. It doesn't mean that you can't try to make a difference. I'm not saying that at all. But as a Christian, what is it that's really driving me? 
Hope sees purpose in the midst of trials. Hope does not give up in life because it sees a rich reward in the future. Hope sees an eternity of blessing versus a finite number of years on the earth. Hope sees personal gratification of meeting our Savior face to face as we see our love coming to this rich culmination. Hope can rely on the future benefit for obedience today. Hope sees what people can become in the power of God and does not give up on them. Hope knows that God does not give up on us. Hope leans into the voice of God, whispering to us in our low points. The point is, hope certainly has a future aspect, but it is living with immediate advantages if we will let it, if we will think upon these things, if we will allow the word of God to take root in our heart. It is a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Question we have to ask ourselves if we're going to understand this passage is what is the meaning of inheritance? So if you will allow me a couple minutes to talk about this, I hope that it clears up some things that I think many Christians can be confused about. The Old and New Testament have two possible scenarios or meanings for this word that I think are determined by the context. It's not that it's necessarily super difficult to understand, but I think it reveals two different meanings. The Old and New Testament both talk about being an heir of God. In other words, God choosing us to be in relationship with him and to be his people. That's referred to as kind of having, being an heir of God, an inheritance of God. Uh, Here's a verse from Deuteronomy. The Levitical priests, all the tribes of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Here you see two, two kinds of inheritances being talked about. One is one that I get now, that I, that I can receive benefits now. And then there, there is inheritance where the Lord is the inheritance. So the priest were not to have certain kinds of rewards or or an inheritance on the earth, but were to concentrate on the Lord being their inheritance. It's almost like what the Lord was saying to pastors in the New Testament, don't get so caught up about food and money and all of that, but know that the Lord will reward you for your good deeds. He talks about that in in the pastoral epistles. Um, Here's another passage in Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is talking about the unconditional inheritance of life in God as his people. And the New Testament talks about this as well. In Galatians 3, it says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Who gave it? God. Who's responsible for it? God. What is it? This relationship with God. He's choosing me to be my people, just like under Abraham. He's choosing Christians to be his people. Now, there is another kind of inheritance, and that refers to what we more commonly refer to as rewards, and this comes from obedience. This has nothing to do with salvation, but what the Bible speaks of when it talks about inheriting the kingdom, having a portion of inheritance in the kingdom. That's rewards. Now, not understanding this distinction, I think, leads to all kinds of issues and problems for us as Christians. When I read certain passages about, you know, um, things being burned up with God's judgment or fire, like in 1 Corinthians 3, you're thinking, salvation. So I have to continue to be faithful if I'm going to continue to be saved. And not understanding the distinction can lead you to that conclusion. Well, what I'm saying is I don't think that's what those are saying at all. Now, I'm not by myself in this. There are many others who think the same thing, that you have these two types of, uh, uh, of inheritance. Um, so when you cannot see the difference between what is promised by God and is unconditional and what is rewarded to Christians through obedience, it's going to lead to a lot of consternation. All right? So we read this in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what does that refer to? Is that our salvation or rewards? Well, I think that's obviously rewards, all right? An inheritance being a reward. It's not our salvation. He even says, you yourself will still be saved, but People will just skip right over that. Paul elsewhere wrote this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So, you have an inheritance <clears throat> that comes from obedience and an inheritance that comes from being called a child of God. God guards the one, the other is a response of God's graciousness in rewarding people for their obedience. Again, I've made this illustration. It's no different than our earthly children. There are, there are children that will go south in terms of what we want them to be doing, how we want them to be living, but we're not going to disown them. But they're not going to receive all the benefit of the relationship, of a close relationship, with their parents when they're basically sticking their middle finger up at you. <clears throat> it's not that you want to disown them. It just makes it so much more difficult, right? And it doesn't have to be. So to be clear, what is Peter speaking about? Well, in this passage, 
he talks about being born again. He speaks of salvation twice in this passage. I think it points to a type of inheritance that is related to salvation and is unconditionally given to us by God. This is an inheritance from God, which belongs to all Christians because we are his children and not for any other reason. The psalmist said, the Lord is my chosen portion. And elsewhere, God is our portion forever in Psalm 73. This aspect of being in relationship with God and enjoying heaven is characterized in 1 Peter as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, when he uses those three words, I think he obviously is talking about heaven because you can have rewards that are lost through being disobedient to God. So these words, I think, all express an eternal character in contrast to earthly possessions which will fade. So it indicates its, its infinite worth, these, um, this earthly treasure or inheritance, the, the heavenly treasure or, or inheritance. Um, so what do the words mean? Imperishable means it is untouched by death. Undefiled means it is unstained by evil. And unfading means it is unimpaired by time. So we could say this about our inheritance, this inheritance of being a child of God, God choosing to love us, all right? That our inheritance is death-proof, our inheritance is sin-proof, and our inheritance is time-proof. Unbelievable, wonderful promises of God that we're to grab a hold of. Now, if you remember that, tell me how you can lose hope because of maybe an election or because of a bill that was passed. or I'm not saying we can't deal with that, but I'm saying overarching the hope that we have in Christ. It allows me to approach these things with, with a foundation, with a grace, with even a sense of contentment, even though I may get upset about this thing down here. And then he says, kept in heaven for you, as if, undefiled, imperishable, and unfading was not enough, it's kept in heaven for you. Who is keeping it if it's kept in heaven? God is. He's the one doing the keeping. <clears throat> this inheritance, our connection with God, is kept safely by God. No force can take away our relationship or connection with God because of his promise and his power. <clears throat> it does not mean that a Christian will not endure hardship. That's not what that means. But when God is keeping us safe, he is protecting our most precious possession, our inheritance in him. Second Thessalonians says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish, establish you and guard you against the evil one. And Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence 
of his glory and great joy. So God himself guards and watches over our salvation, our inheritance. Newsflash, you are not kept by God by your power. You are not even kept by God by your faith. I know that blows some people's minds. Now, I'm to have faith, and I'm to respond to God in faith, and there's great reward for our faith. But this relationship that I have with God is guarded by his faithfulness. And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy that he remains faithful even when we are what? Faithless. How long does he do this? The passage says, until Jesus returns. And our salvation is completely revealed in eternity. The word translated kept is a, is a military word that means guarded or shielded. So I think here's an underlying truth to all this, given the context of 1 Peter, is that suffering today means glory tomorrow. That the prospect of our inheritance is so glorious, it is to provide perspective and comfort for our trouble today. What difference does it make that we're Christians in this world? What difference does my Christianity make in the midst of if my team loses today? What difference does Christianity make and does the gospel make if my guy doesn't get elected or my girl doesn't get elected? What difference does it make that the government is asking me to do things that I don't want to do? Now, if it's immoral... If it goes against an obligation that God has given us in the Scripture, then we have, a, we have an obligation to obey Scripture. But elsewhere we read that even when it's unfair, I'm to what? I'm to obey. Not if it's unholy, but if it's unfair. It's just some, an interesting perspective that God gives us in dealing with the world today. But certainly, a living hope. Am I expressing, understanding, and living with a living hope? John Piper shared a story that makes this point, and this is where I, I got this story. It's about Marshall Shelley, who was a uh, past uh, vice president for Christianity Today and worked with Leadership Magazine. He lost two children to genetic defects. He and his wife Susan lost a daughter just shy of her second birthday, and they lost a son who lived for just two minutes. Okay? And the children passed away within three months of one another. Their son was born with a rare genetic disorder. And as I said, only lived for two minutes. And this was, this was expected, but it happened anyway. Now, 
I'm going to read directly from Marshall. The, the, the doctor cut the cord and gently placed him on Susan's chest. He was a healthy pink, and we saw his chest rise and fall. The breath of life. Thank you, Lord. Then almost immediately he began to turn blue. We stroked his face and whispered words of welcome, of love, and farewell. And all too soon, the doctor said he was gone. Later, Marshall reflected on the experience and wrote this. I was with my son his entire life, two minutes. He entered the world of light and air at 8.20 p.m. on November 22, 1991. As he departed, the doctor said at 8.22, it seemed a very short time, too short. My wife Susan and I never got to see him take his first steps. We barely got to see him take his first breath. I don't know if he would have enjoyed softball or software, dinosaurs or dragonflies. We never got to wrestle, race, or read. Would he have enjoyed those things like his older sisters do? What would have made him laugh, made him scared, made him angry? Those questions swarmed around my soul in the days following my son's arrival and hurried departure. So many things I wondered, but one thing loomed larger than all the rest, haunting me for months. Why would God create a child to live for two minutes? Piper would write, You see, Marshall Shelley didn't even ask the question of whether God did it. Marshall's just so saturated with the sovereignty of God that he asked the next question. Why would God design a baby to live for two minutes? The answer he gave was, he didn't. He designed him to live forever. And two minutes is not that much different from 70 years when you consider forever. Think on that. I think whatever else I say after that would deplete the meaning of some truths that are so profound that we need to meditate on it. And after we meditate on it, discuss it with our significant others. A living hope. Unfading. What difference does this make for us?